0: Hi, I'm Sharon Jones, Head of Digital Innovation at The King's Fund, and I'm delighted to be speaking to Julie Wilson Dodd about how she transformed Parkinson's UK during her time there as Director of Transformation. Can you tell us a bit about your remit when you joined Parkinson's UK? What kind of state was the organisation in and what was the approach that you took to change?
1: I joined Parkinson's UK a bit over five, six years ago with the title of Director of Digital Transformation with a remit to look at how the organisation was operating in terms of culture, ways of working, um, its technical infrastructure and how it used digital technologies and data. The role transformed (laughs) over time to just being Director of Transformation, losing the digital word, and I can come back to why that was, but yeah, a really broad remit. In terms of the state the charity was in, it was probably quite familiar in terms of it had a really passionate workforce, hundreds of people doing really important work across service delivery, research, advocacy, but not necessarily operating in the most modern ways. So people who didn't necessarily have the right kit, who weren't necessarily thinking about whether they were delivering the most efficiently, whether productivity was as high as it could have been. So yeah, it was an organisation in need of modernisation. So what did
0: you find were your like main challenges when you first started that role?
1: Coming into a role like Director of Transformation, I, I was bringing ideas about the kinds of things I thought the organisation might have needed. But I rapidly learnt that I needed to build trust. Anyone coming in with a change word in their title sets off some emotions, some excitement, some fear. I, I kind of rapidly learnt that I needed to really focus on building trust by fixing some of the basics. And when I say the basics, I mean things like internet connectivity, making sure people had good quality devices that just worked for them rather than them losing loads of time, turning on their desktop computers every day. I needed people to understand when I said data-driven ways of working, that wasn't about everybody getting super nerdy with spreadsheets, that that was about having good quality insight about the people we were trying to serve and about trying to make better decisions. So I spent quite a bit of time fixing the basics before I could then build that trust to help people come on the journey of bigger change, things that I felt really mattered, like how we could scale the services to reach more people with Parkinson's.
0: And how do you think you won people's trust or at what point did you realize yes I've you know this is working people are understanding what my vision and what I'm trying to do
1: The point at which I think I realized People were getting this and they were starting to understand why transformation was so needed at Parkinson's UK was when I started hearing some of the language that me and maybe some of my kind of transformation peers were using. So I was starting to hear people talking about agile ways of working. I was hearing about cross-functional teams. I was hearing people talk about product ownership. I was hearing people talk about the culture of the organisation other than just saying everybody's really nice. I was hearing you know, more challenge, actually. As I got into the role, people felt more confident to say, well, I don't think we should do it that way. I think we should do it this way. And, and that was the point where I thought, well, it doesn't matter whether I agree or I don't agree. We're all in this conversation together.
0: And you talked about when you um, dropped the digital side of things. What, what was the reason behind that?
1: Yeah, the organisation, as I said, brought me in as Director of Digital Transformation And I had been somebody who had been a real advocate for digital, I talked about it, I'd done conference talks about it. And I found actually, over time, it had become a barrier for some people, some people kind of put assumptions on it that were completely fine and workable, they thought it was about digital products, that was fine, digital services, that was fine, digital health, that was fine, digital marketing, that was fine. But for other people, it was about the problems they experienced with their software or hardware. And so trying to explain to people, well, digital isn't really about Those things. Yes, technology is part of the change that we are trying to bring about. But this is really about responding to changes in the outside landscape. This is about the fact that there are far more people with Parkinson's than we're able to serve right now, even though we say we're there for everyone affected by Parkinson's. So getting into conversations about digital and constantly explaining that, no, no, this is about responding to the digital era as an organization and modernization started to feel like. A bit of a waste of time when actually the conversation was about. Regardless of whether it's technology or culture or process, what we need to do is change and change faster so that we can be there for more people with Parkinson's. And that became a much more straightforward conversation. We were still talking about how to do the change, but people got over that fear, you know, particularly for some of Parkinson's UK's advisors who had been working kind of as social care workers, working really closely with people with Parkinson's and their families and loved ones, that real fear that they were going to be replaced with robots. One of them even said that to me, because the word digital was kind of looming in their minds, and they they couldn't get over that fear. And once we started talking about change, it didn't make it always a straightforward conversation. But change that was about driving scale and reaching more people and being there for, you know, as broad a range of people with Parkinson's as possible, that got us over quite a big hurdle. We moved from having a a leadership team that I brought in that had a digital supporter engagement manager, a digital product and delivery lead, uh, a digital health lead, to those roles transitioning to being the head of supporter engagement, the head of product and delivery. And that felt quite a natural progression over time as people understood that this was not about magic tech to fix or, or or break things this was about the journey of modernization the organization was on
0: that's really interesting thanks for sharing that with with us
1: what what
0: surprised you along this journey
1: lots of surprises i learned an awful lot and i would say i learned as much from my failures as i learned from my successes there and it, it, you know you hear a lot the mantra of like oh fail fast it's it's surprisingly hard to help you know people and including me feel okay with things not working but I was really surprised to find the things that did take really well. So the word agile is, you know, quite marmite for people. Lots of people really don't like it. Lots of people do like it. And it can be a bit of an internal battle. What I found was we stopped using the word agile as well and started talking about data driven, iterative ways of working, testing and learning, experimentation, taking ownership of of, of the kind of products and services that were in your area. And people really got behind that kind of iterative, rapid test and learn. We adopted a, a kind of a culture of experimentation a lot faster than actually I've experienced it working with other organizations. Organisations. And that was a really pleasant surprise. In terms of other surprises, maybe there was uh, something less positive about the dynamic working with HR. I really believe that transformation and HR are fundamentally linked it's about the culture of the organization and in the organization's people there is no change without people your people have to go with you and they have to be part of that and they have to be involved and i think i hit quite an early surprise working with lovely hr colleagues but who who really didn't see that their role was also about change they weren't uh, prepared in the early stages for the amount of asks I was making of them in terms of, right, well, what's our joint kind of s- skill and personal development, like professional development plan work that we're going to do? What is it that we're going to do in terms of raising questions about, you know, do contracts need to change so that, you know, there is a, a greater understanding of working flexibly? Do we need to be looking at our values together so that we are, all moving together in the right direction with a shared language. And, you know, we ended up doing great work together on a new set of values that included a value that was about being pioneering. It was really true to the organization and its community, this kind of pioneering spirit. But it also really helped support the transformation agenda by, you know, being able to say to each other, well, you know, are we being really pioneering in how we're approaching this or are we just doing the same old stuff? Right. Okay. Well, what would be a more pioneering approach?
0: That's really exciting. And, I wanted to ask you, like, how did you, because it feels like this is a narrative, people need to be part of this journey. And, you know, you've faced some challenges with various functions. How did you bring them into that part of that journey so they could kind of see themselves in this transformation?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was about spending lots of time. I'm a great believer in lunch and coffee as a way of really kind of getting to know each other and learning what it is that's going to be a mutual benefit. So really getting into understanding what the Director of Organisational Development's drivers were at that point in time, what it was that she was worried about, so that I could, you know, really frame and tailor the work I was doing to help support her goals, as well as mine, and she, she and I developed a really strong partnership around that. And it was the same kind of with multiple different stakeholders. Sometimes board members, you know, working with colleagues in all sorts of different teams to understand what it was that they needed, not just what I wanted to get done and what my teams wanted to get done. Um, and and that's really been a, that was really at the heart of the success of the change work partnership. I might share kind of an example of of how some of this change came to life, if that's useful.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So this was a couple of years in after we'd done a lot of the fix, the basic stuff, built that trust, built some understanding about why this transformation programme was even happening, why it was about culture and ways of working and not just some shiny kit or, you know, whatever problems people have got with their uh, uh, kind of Google account that day. Once we got past the basics, the next key thing was working out which of the big problems we wanted to solve. We did a small piece of um, insight research looking at the difference between the amount of people with Parkinson's we were able to serve through our direct services. So that was helpline, local advisors, um, online forum lots of online and offline content, relationships with healthcare professionals. So looking at how many people we were able to serve in any given year versus the overall population and the need within that population. What we found through that initial piece of research was that we were only really able to serve up to sort of 30% of the demand at any given time. And that's a position that I think lots of health charities find themselves in, that they aspire to being there for everyone. But when you're kind of four or five hundred staff, even with a network of, you know, 5,000 volunteers, you just can't be there for everyone who needs you. And people aren't aware that you exist. So even if you could be there for them, they never discover you. Those were really critical insights. And we decided to really focus our transformation efforts on that problem. How can we scale to be there for more people with Parkinson's? Because frankly, no one else is. We set about that challenge by putting together a cross-functional team and I'm, I'm such an advocate for structured collaboration in organisations as the answer to solving big thorny problems. We brought together a team that was some of the service advisors, so some of the local advisors, some of the helpline advisors, some of the service managers, uh, our kind of healthcare liaison um, lead alongside a content designer, a product manager, a service designer, a user researcher, We put them together initially in too small a room in the main office and then over time as COVID hit, working remotely and set them the shared goal of this problem. How are we going to scale to be there for more people? Starting with how are we going to reach people in a timely way so that they know we exist? That team went on to challenge through a series of discovery sprints and prototyping first and then build sprints, testing and iterating as they went. They challenged organisational misconceptions, organisational wisdom that exists in the organisation. Oh, healthcare professionals will never really, you know, refer people directly to Parkinson's UK. The best we can ask is that they'll just hand out a leaflet. No, wrong. It turns out if you provide a really easy online form with good rationale, deal with NHS data sharing standards, do that work. Healthcare professionals, those diagnosing consultants, the Parkinson's nurses, they are desperate to refer people on to a source who they know they can trust to be with people on their whole journey in a way that they cannot in one or two 15-minute appointments a year. So we set up a mechanism for people to be directly referred into Parkinson's UK with their consent. And, you know, that's not just the person with Parkinson's, that's a loved one, somebody who's close to them, often the the their partner. And then to be there with them, ongoing with a kind of personalized, tailored set of um, content, information, tools that saw them through from that really scary early diagnosis stage when you don't know really what's going to happen through progression with the condition, through the ups and downs of Parkinson's. It's neurodegenerative, but it's not predictable in terms of that um, neurodegeneration. So helping people move through those moments of problem coping struggling through that and right through into when you really need to advocate for your rights when you really need to plan ahead because you know it's neurodegenerative there's no cure we need to be upfront with people about at some point we're talking about end of life scenarios and helping people prepare for that as well so you know it was a big success story it really shifted how a lot of workers at parkinson's uk Saw the work that they did. In fact, you know, some of the service workers have said it, you know, it's transformed their careers. It's um, created, you know, a raft of service designers who, some of whom have gone on to be very successful in other jobs, paid a lot more than they were, you know, in whatever role they came into, into Parkinson's UK and as a volunteer manager. Um, And yeah, it's really shifted the internal culture again because we were really focused on communicating that work and how it was happening. So there were, Show and tells every couple of weeks just that anyone could join from trustees through to advisors through to the finance team to understand not just the project and how that was working, successes, failures as as we went through, but also why that way of working was so impactful. So yeah, there are now um, multiple centres across the UK referring people directly into Parkinson's UK. There's a like long list of demand for, for centres that want to sign up. They're still in kind of a, a beta phase. They're trying not to open it out to everyone whilst they still test and learn about what kind of content and tools people need um, after they've been referred in. But yeah, it's provided a mechanism for Parkinson's UK to be able to say, yeah, we can be there for everyone affected by Parkinson's for the first time.
0: That sounds incredible. And it sounds like you know that way of working was then fully embedded as just like a, a given going forward do you think that your colleagues there even remember how they used to work even though you had those challenges at the beginning
1: that that involved a large amount of the organization there was all sorts of work going on across the entire services division but there were still areas of the organization who hadn't gone through that change so the research arm for example they'd been doing kind of s- small cross functional team projects you know trying to get participant involvement campaigns tied together with other areas of the organisation so they weren't working in isolation but you know there was still a journey and there probably still is you know I left it a short time ago but there probably still is teams familiarising themselves with those ways of working but we did see the pattern replicate itself on fundraising and engagement campaigns you know they were delivering far greater results as a product of working in cross-functional teams together as well um yeah I you know I, I hope it is now entrenched in the culture there because it it had such obvious and easy to evidence (laughs) impact but yeah it it took a long time for I think people to recognize the impact of that shift that those kind of ways of working because they take a while to set up you have to work outside the silos that people are used to working in silos are really entrenched and unless you work hard to design and then basically force people to work in the new way by saying this is how you're going to be working for the next three months, six months, nine months. People will just go back to doing things how they did them before, even if they think those aren't the right ways of doing it. It's um, we're creatures of habit.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if you were to do it again, what would you change?
1: I would, I would bite off Less, I definitely tried to do too many things in my first couple of years there, I tried to fix too many problems, I wanted to, you know, prove that change could happen at a pace that I think wasn't really sustainable in that first couple of years. And we set up things that I, you know, I probably didn't then have the energy to kind of continue like we set up an innovation lab and and we did some really good work in it but then you know that needed handing over to somebody to manage and at the same time we were fixing a load of infrastructure stuff and we were working on new values and you know it was it was a lot. And it was a lot of change for people to go through. Even when you're involving people really well, there is change fatigue because it's not like it's it's not people's only job, usually, you know, embedding new values in, in the way they do their work. And, you know, I probably could have been a bit more patient with it. So, yeah, I think that's the the main thing I would change. I would maybe just slow down and do slightly fewer things each year, albeit we got an awful lot done in the five years I was there.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. And now that you advise organisation on their transformation journeys, what are the common themes that you see time and time again?
1: It's really often about skills and confidence. So often people will come to me to talk about particular skill sets, that might be service di- design, that might be product management, that might be data strategy, that might be modern marketing and engagement, that might be modern organisational development and organisational design. But usually the, the point they're starting at is, oh, we need to up our skills. And usually what I find is there's people in the organisation who do have those skills to some degree, but they don't have the confidence and the voice in the organisation to to really influence well, so as well as building skills, which is key, it is often about identifying you know, the internal coalition of the willing, the people who do have some of those capabilities and they just haven't been given permission. and then adding you know one or two people, uh, I often find when I talk to the charities and nonprofits I work with, they just need you know a couple more people who have been there and done it before who can then go in confidently and say, "I oh, don't worry." this is how it's going to work, because I've I've tried it, and this works. And, and just one or two people, probably in roles like yours, Sharon, where, you know, you've got this expertise, and you've got a remit to, to influence and teach others how to do things differently, make a really, really big impact. The other thing is a constant conversation about whether HR is a, an aid or a blocker in terms of change. So, saying that you need to bring in somebody with a slight different skill set if it immediately bumps into a load of processes and policies and recruitment issues basically that's slowing your whole change program down so working out how to establish relationships with HR early in a way that is again mutually beneficial that everybody understands why HR needs to be involved in any change program that's something that comes up a lot and then I think the thing that comes up with quite a lot of the organisations I work with is about that cross-functional teams working on shared goals piece. So organisations will come to me with a problem that they've got and often the heart of the problem is that the right people aren't working together. There'll be one team over over here desperately trying to get something done and another team working over there on a related problem and they're not working together. So helping organisations take a step back and say ah could we put our teams back together outside of the department, team, budget structures that they're currently stuck in, in a way that might help them focus on that shared goal and and make faster progress. That's often where I'm finding the work needs to happen.
0: I've picked up on your use of the word language quite a lot, the language of change and the language of transformation to kind of help people grapple with it. Could you talk a bit more about how you maybe took less technical words or sorry, more technical words and softened them so people could kind of get their heads around it?
1: Sure. And uh, in this conversation, I've used the word change quite a few times, but I would say I very, very rarely used the word change um, in my role as director of transformation. I did talk about transformation. For some, For some, it's less frightening than the word change. But as far as possible, what I and my wider leadership team tried to do was be specific. So I think I talked a bit about agile and people don't necessarily like that word. Some do, but people are much more OK with talking about iterative and test and learn and experimentation and and then there's a degree to which you can teach people some new language people can get into the idea of a backlog and sprints those kind of things aren't too too difficult to learn and a bit of that more kind of technical unfamiliar language is is useful when we talked about we introduced other skill sets around kind of product management that was one where you know, there's a temptation in organizations to uh want to soften language too much and it got into odd conversations about oh do we call it a product manager we don't have any product managers could could we call it a project manager and having to explain no product manager is a different thing to a project manager and we won't be able to recruit if we call it anything other than product manager so with this balance in language between right here is some unnecessarily jargony stuff that we can just avoid and talk to people about in just plain English and then some other language particularly around recruiting roles and building particular kind of skill sets like product or service design where we needed to explain well this is what design thinking is and this is why it's called design thinking and that just became a kind of a conversation I guess that's the most important point about language talking to, listening to to the language that that people were using and working out right this is a time where I want to teach you some new language and this is a time where I'm going to bend the language that I'm used to to working with in my kind of transformation land to something that's a bit more human.
0: That's really interesting and what three key things should people be thinking about when it comes to transformation and how can they play their part regardless of what area they're in?
1: So I, I would say it, one of the things that I did struggle with was people, when they liked the idea of transformation and digital transformation, then often went on to be like, great, so you'll be getting on with that. And I'll carry on with my day job. So what I would say to anyone in any organisation, whether you're in finance or research or funding or fundraising or comms, wherever you are in an organisation, whether you're in the executive team, or you are a brand new starter straight out of, you know, uni. Ask the questions about, are we doing this particular thing I'm working on in the best possible way? And if there is any sense that the answer is, no, there might be a better way of doing it, whether that might be a better process, a better tool, a better collaboration around it, a better partnership, then don't just let that question go. Dig into how it can be better, because everybody is responsible for organisational change and transformation. We work in nonprofits because we care about the mission all of us. And we owe it to the people that we're doing our missions for. In my case, it was people with Parkinson's. In the King's Fund, it's, it's a really wide range of kind of healthcare audiences. We owe it to them to be doing our absolute best at all times. So everyone, one, ask the question, is the work you're doing being done in the best possible way? And could you learn to do it differently? Secondly, I would say take responsibility for your own own skills and your teams. If you feel like there's a skill set missing or there's professional development that you think your team would really benefit from, champion it. Go and find out where where you can get those skills. And if it costs money, then get into conversations with your learning development team about the priorities for for this year or next year around how you're going to upskill. Organisations need to be constantly investing in helping the workforce continue to modernise and move with the times with their skills. And you can't just, you know, hope that that will happen. And it's not just, you know, send everyone on one day training course and it fixes it. It's a constant commitment to professional development that people can champion themselves and the organisations need to support. It feels like there's a sense of ownership for
0: people, that they can be part of this transformation. It's not something that's being done to them. And, you know, that's where sometimes the tensions can lie. And what would you say your final and third piece
1: of advice would be I think my third and final piece of advice would be to kind of look up and look out we get really involved in the business of what's going on in our own organizations I certainly did when I was at Parkinson's UK and it, it's easy to forget to look out at the wider world and that's looking out at what's going on with your key audiences how are their lives changing what it is what is it that they need from you um but it's also about what are the what are the innovations coming down the line what are the opportunities to to do things differently because it's amazing what you learn from just looking at what others are doing or, or what other new products new services new culture initiatives um are out there and you can really speed up and accelerate the work the change work that you're doing by learning from others so I'm always an advocate for you know get out there, look outside. It's great. It's why it's great that you're doing this podcast series because, you know, not necessarily listening to me, but listening to other experts, it brings fresh thought. And I always think that that's really valuable.
0: Yeah, definitely. I agree. I think it's really important to go outside and see what else is happening, what people are doing and how you can take something from that and bring it into your own organisation in your own way. But that's just been really insightful. Thank you so much, Judy, for joining us. And thanks for everyone listening. I hope you found it useful. This is just one of a series of in-house podcasts for the King's Fund, all about various aspects of digital workplace transformation. Bye for now.